One of the two major political parties is deeply committed to putting us back to 1945. That's scary to me. I advise people at the very highest levels of this government, and I'm still terrified. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of our Live Into Your Brilliance podcast. You have your normal duo of hosts, myself, Al Kenny, and also Mr. Mark Billows-Bilby. Um, Mark is uh, digital nomading around the US at the minute, so I will let him tell you where he is at the moment. And also, we've got a, a special guest, which I uh, uh, will give Mark the pleasure of uh, introducing. Welcome, brother. Whereabouts in the world are you? My friend, uh, this week I am in beautiful Sedona in Arizona um, and uh, learning all about the, uh, the natural vortexes of energy that, uh, that converge in, in this beautiful part of the world and learning about the, uh, the, the early uh, f- people who occupied these incredible valleys and, and went and saw some fascinating petroglyphs uh, yesterday, which were just out of this world. And uh, I could spend an entire hour talking about what we learned yesterday. But yeah, um, loving Sedona and uh, our first visit here and and starting to do some hikes as well, which has been a treat. But the real treat um, is our guest uh, this week. Um, He is uh, a gentleman who I've come to know through some of the work I did with uh, or am doing with a company uh, in Boston, QuickBase, which we've mentioned before. Um, but Dr. Alvin Tillery uh, is joining us, and he has been a collaborator with me and the employee experience team uh, at QuickBase, um, doing a lot of really, really good work around an inclusive leadership mindset. So by way of introduction, um, I, uh, I L is the founding uh, director of the Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy at uh, Northwestern, um, and he, where he is an associate professor of political science. Um, he's a, a researcher, a, a teacher. Uh, he's an author. He wrote uh, Between Homeland and Motherland, Africa, U.S. Foreign Policy and Black Leadership in America. Um, I bought my copy the other day, Al. You'll be pleased to know. So I'm going to be wading my way through that. I haven't, I haven't, I won't even pretend that I've read uh, uh, the first chapter. Um, he's a he's a national book uh, award winner um, for that for that work. Uh, he served as co-chair of the American Political Sciences Association's Presidential Task Force on Racial and, and Class Inequalities in the Americas. Um, and he's a, a frequent commentator in the national media. Um, and he's a dad. Um, he's, uh, he's a husband. Um, and, uh, and he's a hell of a good human being and somebody who I've grown very, very fond of uh, through the work that we've done together. So I'm delighted to in, uh, welcome uh, L to this week's podcast. Yeah, thanks for that kind introduction. Uh, I feel the same way about you, brother. And uh, uh, next time you want one of my books... I'll send you a box for free. <laughs> so, but I do appreciate the uh, the purchase. But uh, just just ping me on text, and I'll, I'll mail one over to you. But I hope you enjoy it. And uh, I, I know as two former Africanists, we can uh, we can find some common field there as well, right? <laughs> Well, at least yours is still in print, Al. Mine, I, I have to send you one of my last copies. They, I, they won't be making any more. 
<laughs> yeah, not for much longer for mine either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Al, um, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And, and you know, you, you've got so many uh, rich and wonderful stories that I've, I've had the privilege of hearing some of them um, through, in, in some of the conversations we've had. But would love to hear your story and, and you know, how did you, how did you, well, to tell us about growing up and, and, and your experiences yeah. of growing up in, in, in America um, but also, uh, how did you end up uh, as the director of, of of the center that you that you now head up? And, yeah. and, and tell us about that journey. Yeah, Mark. I mean, so you know, I'm a big fan of the comics uh, and and superhero stories. And, and you know, there's always if you, Stan Lee would always talk about the origin story of of you know uh, these heroes. And I don't think of myself as a hero. I think of myself as just a regular dude. But I think all of us have these origin stories that are really somewhat um, foundational to who we become as adults. And, you know, I think um, we talk a lot in uh, the kind of counseling spaces or the coaching spaces about trauma, right? Like all humans experience like, you know, childhood trauma and they really shape who they are. I don't think we talk enough about, you know, the kinds of positive formative experiences. I think, you know, that stuff is just kind of read as a given in a lot of our, our discourses, humans, right? Oh, I've got a mom and a dad and my grandparents, we used to go on vacation in the, you know, station wagon with them or, you know, like these types of things I think people just assume as very pedestrian. And, and I think they are, but, but I do also think that, um, you know, there's a deep connection to, both the traumatic and the robust loving experiences that we have as children and, and what we end up doing or, or, or aspiring to do, right? I mean, not all of us are going to succeed on a career path that is deeply connected to who we are, but I think it, it says a lot about our hobbies, right? It says a lot about our, you know, our pastimes, our the ways that we engage with others, right? Like all of that stuff, there's kind of origin stories to it, right? And so, you know, I became an anti-racist educator and someone focused on then later sort of reducing inequalities for what, what I call the kind of marginalized groups, right? Gender-based, LGBT+, plus, uh, disability uh, groups, uh, in large part because of my childhood trauma uh, and also the intergenerational trauma that was transmitted to me by the, you know, black Americans that raised me and my, you know, my great grandmother, my grandparents, my, my, my parents, their generations. I mean, you know, my, you know, reality is that, um, America was a racialized caste system where the color of your skin determined where you could live, uh, whom you could marry, your entry into the labor market, um, whether or not you could vote, which is the most basic definition of a democracy, is can can you vote on your leaders, right? And all of the people that raised me uh, spent the vast majority of their formative years under that caste system, right? I mean, so, I mean, my, um, you know, grandfathers, when America committed to multiracial uh, equality uh, in 1968, 
when the Fair Housing Act was passed, the last of the four great civil rights bills, you know, they were 39 years old, <laughs> right? So, I mean, you know, people think like, oh my God, like, why is it so hard for our current politicians to, you know, embrace, you know, equality or racial equality? Well, you know, they all, they all grew up under, they're all, the average age of Congress is like 66 years. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, so they were teenagers when the racial dictatorship ended. Right. And so and so the experiences that were transmitted to me from those people, I mean, my 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 mother knew her great grandfather who'd been a slave. <laughs> right. Uh, my aunt Sarah, who raised me, um, you know, she died in 2011 at 107 years old. You know, her parents were slaves. <laughs> right. So so like, you know. People think, you know, it's a very long time ago, but it's not really that long ago, right? And so, so just kind of setting the stage for your, your, your audience, you know, like, you know, that intergenerational stuff of living under that system was passed down to me, right? And, and so, you know, there are a lot of important lessons in, in that, um, you know, experience about you know, life and, and, uh, you know, precarity and hard work and joy and love and why you have fun when you can have fun, right? All of these things are really embedded in the kind of soul of that, those generations. And so they did transmit that to us. And then you add on top of that, like my generation, I'm 50, Two, almost 53, like we're the generation that integrated everything, right? And, and so the trauma of that experience of being the first to go to integrated schools, being the first to enter universities like Harvard, right? Uh, the first in large numbers, right? Um, you know, there, there's a lot of hardships there that really formed my commitment to uh, being an educator that would um, try to break down these inequalities and help people live better together, help people, you know, have empathy for one another and recognize common humanity and live better together, right? I don't want to refer to it as a slow burn, but that sort of, that growing awareness and consciousness you know, infused by this multi-generational experience that, that um, you know, ultimately led to you going, ah, okay, I now know what I want to do with, I, I know how I want to dedicate my time and, and how I want to spend my time. Well, was that a, was that a sort of, was there a moment when you went, ah? Yeah, there was. I mean, for, for so, you know, now you know, wearing my social science hat, like most kids don't have any awareness of racial difference from a pejorative standpoint in, until they're about five or six years old, until some adult tells them to be pejorative, right? So like, you know, growing up in, in West Philadelphia, sort of very, you know, ethnically black neighborhood, adjacent with a kind of ethnically Irish and an ethnically Italian neighborhood in South Philadelphia, like I went to kindergarten with, you know, some white kids. And this was very new for our parents and grandparents. They'd never 
you know, my best friend was a, a, an Irish boy named Tommy. His parents were immigrants, right? And 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 they, you know, uh, we had no awareness of our kind of differences. Um, and our parents at, at that age of like five allowed us to kind of just play that out. Uh, I think that for them it was great a great novelty. They they enjoyed that as well, right? The first time I really understood what it meant to be black in America from a caste standpoint was when I was eight years old. Um, and that's when we went on this big family trip to visit my great-grandmother, Sadie, uh, who lived on our farm in Jeff Davis County, Georgia. That's how deep south... The county's named after Jefferson Davis, right? So like, you know, they have like all these crazy Confederate Remembrance Days down there. It's just like, to this day, it's like stepping back in time, right? So I'm eight years old. I go back. I go there. We're visiting my great-grandmother, whom I adored. We all adored. And all of these kinds of, you know, white people that I'd never encountered in my life are coming up to her and they're saying, Aunt Sadie, are these your people from up north? Aunt Sadie, you got my jam. Aunt Sadie, I'm going to come back by and cut the wood off of your property. And I just looking at my dad like, are all of these white people related to us? Like, why do they keep calling my great-grandmother Aunt Sadie, right? I had no reference for that, right? And then my my dad was like, oh, you know, it's just a Southern thing. Like, well, I'll explain it to you at some someday, right? And then we got back to Philadelphia and, you know, there are these ridiculous products in like, you know, 20th century uh, American popular culture that have slave imagery on them. So Aunt Jemima's pancake mix is one of them. So I'm in the store with my grandmother, not my great grandma, my grandmother, who's the my, my great grandmother Sadie is is the mother-in-law of my grandmother Selma. So I'm back in Philadelphia. I'm in the store with her, and she's complaining about these horrible products. And I'm and I'm old enough to read. I say, "Oh, Aunt Jemima," and it's a slate. And I said, "That's why." They are calling my great grandmother auntie because that's how you referred to the slave women that took care of you, right? And so, like, that's when I first realized, like, there's something not quite right in this culture, right? I also remember one another big highlight of the trip was my mother becoming very upset with an older uh, white woman who came up and she said, Oh my goodness, your little pickers are so beautiful referring to me and my brother. She said, oh, can I, can I rub their heads for good luck? I've got a bit of arthritis. Can I rub their heads? And I'll never forget like the look on my father's face. <laughs> he's looking at my mother and he's like, uh, everybody in the station wagon. <laughs> right? You know, she was probably 90 years old in 1978, right? She didn't have any, I mean, she didn't mean any harm by it. But she's like, yes, can I please rub your pickers' heads, right? Because the magic of their, you know, heads will help me ease my arthritis, you know? So, like, that's when I was like, oh, wow, like, this is really a different place, this American South. And then the next year, I moved to New Jersey, where we integrated my, my, my neighborhood 
And the story that you're most familiar with from my from my upbringing is that you know, like I, I I'm the first black kid at my bus stop. I don't really know anyone there. Like I am, you know, standing next to a white girl, Gabriella, who whose father was my violin teacher the summer before. So she's the only person I really knew. And some older boys from the high school decided that they were going to, you know, hang me from a tree um, because they were not happy that I was integrating their neighborhood and their, and their um, you know, bus stop. And, and I, I committed the crime of standing next to a white girl. So, so like one of them had heard, you know, their father say, oh, in the old days, we would have, we would have hung those black people in trees if they tried to move into our neighborhood. So he said, oh, that's an idea. Let, let's do that to this kid. And so I remember, you know, little boys used to have these ridiculous jackets where the cape would, uh, the hood would unzip and become a cape. And that was like really cool, right? So like they took that hood, they pulled the cord, tied it around my neck. They took both ends of the cape and tied it up in the tree. And I remember kind of choking and starting to lose consciousness. And then the bus driver arrived an older white gentleman. And I saw his eyes. He saw mine. He scrambles under the, you know, the dashboard for his toolkit, cuts me down. And, um, you know, and I lived. And, and you know, from, from that moment, I thought, well, maybe it's not just like a Southern problem, <laughs> like this kind of, you know, racial difference thing. And, and I, I just, I, you know, I was nine. So I wasn't like, I'm going to go and get a PhD and, solve the world's problems of racial and like, but I was like, I am going to try to like figure out why some of these kids in this town, you know, not, not all, um, you know, not even most, but why some of these kids in this town treat me different. Um, and so I, I kind of set about becoming a student of the human experience to try to figure this out, figure out this puzzle try to really get people to bridge differences. Um, and, you know, just to be frank, I mean, I, I had a pretty idyllic childhood in that town going forward. I mean, my best friends were, you know, white kids and, you know, we played on integrated sports team, you know, but there was always this kind of uh, uh, ugly underbelly with some of this, right? That that wasn't really easy to resolve. But you know, it was kind of always in my mind to gravitate toward politics and social movements and social justice. And so, you know, I'm really, really fascinated as a teenager with, you know, the movements for freedom in Ireland and South Africa and Palestine. You know, I'm really kind of, you know, like a lot of us in that generation, I'm, I'm like really committed to these kinds of you know, massive human <laughs> you know, tragedies yeah. that are playing out um, in these cast environments, right? But Al, the 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 one fascinating thing for me, and you know, and I think the reason I fell in love with you when I met you and and got to see you work and and just the way you approached educating um, and 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 pointing and and raising awareness is. Arguably, and and I take your point about this phenomenal family um, community that you had around you, and this this collective consciousness, which which infused a, a certain 
kind of appreciation for 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 the good things and 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 pointed out a lot of the bad things and you sort of that melded in your brain and and somehow you emerged um with this with this this curiosity and this philosophy and this interest but you weren't bitter and so i guess what i'm what i'm really interested in is you know as a as an em- emerging leader in the space how did you how did you avoid going to the basement and not being bitter and twisted about this and 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 maintaining this kind of curiosity and operating from this higher level of consciousness where you were like i see it for what it is i see all the ugliness i see yeah, the racism yeah. the bias what whatever it is but i'm approaching it from here rather than from down here and like how did that happen there's a lot of comparative thought about that right so so on the one level is i think even though what happened to me was crazy and horrific, I lived, <laughs> right? So I was grateful for that. But, but then I was also cognizant of the fact that like, what happened to me was nothing compared to the kind of daily indignities that my grandparents faced or my great-grandparents faced. Uh, um, you know... Uh, my aunt Sarah, the one that I, that I told you about, who you know, who ra- ra- helped rape me, you know, her in 1908, her family came to New Jersey from Georgia because the Klan took. They had about 500 acres of land. The Klan showed up and just said, "We're going to lynch all of your boys if you don't get in your horse and buggies and leave right now." And so, you know, they had to start all over again from from dust right uh and so they went they went north and so just the kind of reality of knowing that whatever i was facing was a far better environment than what they were facing so that's that's like you know step one of not not be so down on yourself step two is like we say in the black tradition you know particularly the church traditions is that your your elders have hands on you right and so I was always right, and it sounds really horrible, horribly elitist. And you know, I would never have admitted this when all of my elders were alive. But like, you know, we've it's it's now just down to like my mom and my uncle. Like, so, but all of these folks who raised me, you know, uh, they they're they're gone. Now. Right. And, and they used to always, they used to kind of pour into me this notion that I was special. Um, to the point of like almost like em- embarrassment, right? Like I would go to visit my Aunt Cree or my Aunt Sarah or I would go south and they would say, This is the boy. This is the boy that you told us about in church. And he's going to Morehouse College and we're going to give him you know, $5, take this to buy your books, you know. And, you know, I just thought for a long time that this was just the kind of sentimentality that every person in my generation who was integrating these spaces was dealing with, right? And it was, but it's not just sentimentality. It is a kind of intergenerational investment, right? So think about it. So, the state of Georgia 
said that my grandfather and all the black men in his generation could only go to school to the fifth grade. And then from the fifth grade, they're kicked out and they've got to go and start working in the fields and pay taxes so that the white kids could go to school, right? So all of my people that are working as farmhands or domestic servants or in factories, the fact that I could like go to school with white kids, (laughs) finish high school, go to Morehouse College, I mean, go to Harvard? I mean, these were intergenerational dreams. And so there's no time to be, oh, woe is me. Oh, I'm like, you know, mad at all the racism here or all of the hatred. It's like, okay, you know, there's the, all of these people are counting on me to succeed. <laughs> and I'm not going to let them down. Right. And, 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 th- and then on top of it, you know, what's very interesting about the black folks that grew up under the caste system is they never really tagged everyone as, you know, just kind of universally evil, right? Like they might, you know, my grandmother would, uh, my great grandmother would say, oh, you know, you got to get yourself in, in league with the good white folks, <laughs> right? Stay away from the bad white folks. But the good white folks, those are the ones you got to know. And I'm just like, in your town, there are no good white folks, Grandma Sadie, right? But like, that was a hugely privileged position coming down from the summer, <laughs> for the summer to visit her and from New Jersey and being like, all of these people are hard, right? But she's like, no, no, like, that one is not horrible. (laughs) Like I've got these deals. And so like, you know, I enter these spaces like Harvard and I'm thinking most of these people will be horrible, but I've got to find the ones that will not. Um, And I've got to work with them and have them mentor me and nurture me so that I can succeed for all of these people back home. And, you know, that's just a hell of a lot of pressure, man, on, on my generation. The generation that kind of grew up after 1968, part of the reason they're so, like, I don't want to say screwed up, but so uptight is because we're carrying all the pressure of being the integrators, not messing it up. And that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot, it's, it's, it's a lot of stress. Um, I remember when I got to Harvard, my, my professor from Morehouse, Tobe Johnson, was the reason I had gotten into any of these fancy schools. He trained me from the day I arrived at Morehouse to, be, get, to go to an elite school and get a PhD, literally from day one. And I, I got there and, and it was just horrible. I mean, these professors were walking up to me and saying, Mr. Tillery, would you please drop out of... Uh, the department so that a more qualified white man could, can take your spot. Will you, will you please leave every day in class? Mr. Tillery, you're wasting all of our time. Will you please drop out? Right. Uh, and so I'm like, I, I call it Dr. Johnson. You know, he died in 2021 at about 90 same year. My dad, like about a month from when my, so, so my, my, my dad died in September 
Charles Mills, the great philosopher, a dear friend of mine, died uh, uh, like in October. And my my mentor, Tobe Johnson, died in November of 21. What a shitty... Uh, oh, sorry. You guys can bleep that. <laughs> what, a, what a terrible <laughs> whole, uh, fall yeah. that was, right? <laughs> it's like it's like the Green Day, like after September ends, right? Uh, and so, but Tobe used to say to me, I, I called him up and said, I, I, this Harvard's not for me, doc. I was like, I, I, I'm not going to be able to stay here. Like this is, this, this is putting me back to that experience that I had uh, when I was a kid. <laughs> and I, it's triggering me. I was like, I, I, I got I to gotta, I gotta quit. And he said, Tillery, always called me Tillery. Never mind first. Tillery, um, you can do it. He's like, you can quit if you feel that you can't. He's like, I know that you can. I'm remembering the conversation. I know that you can do it. If you don't feel like you can uh, make it, then, then you can quit. We'll find another place for you. But he's like, I want to tell you a story. He's like, in 1957, I integrated Columbia University. I became the first black person to get a PhD in the social sciences at Columbia University. He's just like, I could not live on campus. <laughs> He's like, I was just out of the Korean War. My wife and I couldn't live on campus. Um, you know, uh, we weren't invited anywhere. We were not, you know, nurtured in any way. He said, if we could survive that, you can certainly survive Harvard in 1993. And I thought, huh. So he has hands on me too, like all of these people in my family and in Georgia and Virginia, all these. And so I, I couldn't, I couldn't quit. I couldn't, couldn't give up. And so I found this guy named Bob Bates, Robert Bates, who was a great scholar of Africa. Uh, and, and I said, this is going to be my guy. This is going to be my good white guy in this environment of terrible people. And I remember I met him because we had this, this room at Harvard called the Bowie Vernon Room. It's like all the, like that's the highest level of prestige is when, you, is when you get to the end of your career, they name a room after you, right? So the Bowie Vernon Room, he's standing in there. It's got all these photos of the most famous professors from the 1800s all the way up on the wall, right? And... um and he's like, um, you know, look at, he doesn't know that I'm there. I'm standing behind him. He's like, look at all of these old white guys on the wall. And he's like, man, we've got to change this university. That's what he's saying to himself, right? And I thought to myself, Grandma Sadie, I found him. <laughs> right? And so he turned around and he's like, Oh, Alvin, I didn't know you were there. I was like, oh, yeah, you know. And I was just like, you're going to be my guy. You don't know it. <laughs> but And then, you know, he just, he just, I survived Harvard because of him and a guy named Kwame Anthony Appiah. They, uh, they, they, uh, who's now the ethicist for the New York Times. Um, and, you know, that that's how I made it. But But the pressure of feeling like, it's not just for me. 
was both uh, positive and negative. There's so many powerful aspects to what you've been to your story. And, and that made me think of a when you when you mentioned even in that last piece, you know, the I can't remember the professor's name, but you know, when he said, well, no, well, in 1958, this is what I did, and he told a story and that shifted a perspective for you. It made me think about just how powerful, you know, thoughts shared between people are. And, you know, you know, as you've mentioned, you had the hands of elders on you and that generational investment. I guess if we look at, you know, that five-year-old you and then think about all the children that in many ways start, there's, a, there's an innocence that I think we all come into the world with. And then the power in either direction for shared thought to condition people uh, to have a certain perspective on the world. How how do you think we're doing in terms of um, sh- shifting the universal perspective? And is there are there things that you are seeing that are going to accelerate it versus it being a kind of a generational, you know. Um, pull through because like I think about that I'm an Irishman and I think about, you know, different generations of Irish people and the stories that get passed through and where's the opportunity to kind of raise the collective consciousness um, so that, you know, there are more people like you, like Mark, that come into that, that have, that are starting to kind of have this, that this is the story that's being told across the collective. I'm, I'm just really interested in what your views are there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's a lot there, Al. So, I mean, I, I, I think America is a uniquely challenging space uh, for storytelling to heal uh, our dysfunction. Uh, because in America, there is a consistent campaign of disinformation to turn back the clock uh, to the dark times, right? So, you know, you think about South Africa and, and, you know, of course, things in South Africa are tough and nothing's perfect there. And, you know, whether or not that system will hold together, like just like whether or not America will hold together is, is an open question. But this kind of notion of like truth and reconciliation at that moment, you know, was very profound. America has not engaged in that. They refuse to engage in because the, the capitalist enterprise in America thrives on a kind of system justification that would never tolerate that kind of honesty, <laughs> right? With one, and, and, you know, there are other kinds of apartheid regimes around the world that, that uh, we, we see engaging this behavior right now, right? Um, you know, we think about what happened in Northern Ireland, right? Similar kind of reconciliatory process. I was a great fortune to, to have a first teaching post at Notre Dame, spend a good deal of time in, with the Irish studies crowd and, and, and in Ireland and, and the kind of intergenerational narrative. I see a lot of my Irish brothers, they, you know, had hands on them when they're surviving Oxford and Cambridge and Trinity College and, you know, like, 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 you know, the guys that I grew up with from Northern Ireland <laughs> as a young academic, 
you know, their story and my story are very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, with the exception of, I, I must say that I probably was way better off in, in some ways than they were. Uh, because somehow my father, you know, beat the racial caste system and 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 achieved, you know, con- considerable economic success, which allowed me to to integrate in the first place. But but I I raise those narratives because when I think of the three societies today, South Africa, the USA, and Northern Ireland, the only one where storytelling seems to be having resiliency is Northern Ireland. And, and why is that? And I think that's because of the, 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 the economic resources that followed <laughs> the narratives of atonement. That has not happened in the USA, has not happened in South Africa for a variety of complex reasons, right? And so, and so what does that mean for us? It means that we've got to tell these stories as anchors of a new system that will produce greater equity for everyone, right? Um, and I think what one thing I learned, at, 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 you know, at Harvard and then when I was at Notre Dame, is that you know, while yes, my story as a Black American is unique, there are many marginalized groups around the world <laughs> that I can kind of see myself in, um, and they can see themselves in me. Um, there are many people of privilege who get it as well. Uh, uh, you know, and I mean, back to the bitterness question. I mean, for, for me, the notion of a kind of vengeance culture, like we're seeing playing out in some, some parts of the world today. It's like, I, I don't think black Americans ever imagined that like someday the world will be free of white people and then we will all live better. Right. Like that was never the formulation of the people that led us to multiracial democracy. And the formulations of Dr. King, Fannie Lou Hamer, like they were like, let's try to love each other, <laughs> right? And produce equity from there. And those were always the stories that, that affected me the most. And then you even look at the, the, the kind of narratives of pe- where people were bitter, you know, that bitterness never called for a kind of eradication of the other. It was kind of a self-defensive bitterness, right? Um, uh, but, you know, you think about like, oh, the Black Panther Party. Like, they never wanted, like, you know, white people to go away, <laughs> right? Like, they just wanted police shootings to stop. And, you know, like, they, they supported the North, folks in Northern Ireland and in Cambodia. And, like, you know, like they, like, they always got a kind of global perspective, right? And so, you know, it's just not really fundamental to our tradition. Um, and I think that that leads me to be hopeful that kind of sharing these stories across divides can point us to, like, what models of equity are but then you've got to actually invest in it. And that's the hardest part now. Like that's what that's what that's why I founded the Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy, is that it doesn't seem like anyone's investing in healing and bringing us together. And, you know, like I teach at a top 1% college, right? And you know, we're besieged now by people who don't want their, their babies to be 
challenged by their political views, right? And like equity for them is like, my kid should come here and, and, and go to class and not be challenged by any professor about why they think Mexican kids should be taken from their parents at the border, right? Like n- nobody should be asking that. My kids should never be asked to call a transgender person by pronouns that they've chosen. They, you know, like, like, you know, like that's the kind of effete navel gazing that we're dealing with at these elite colleges. And I'm thinking like, um, none of those are hardships. <laughs> like none of those are equity problems, right? The equity problems are, you know, why are the trans kids committing suicide? Or, you know, you know, why can't this Mexican girl get an internship? Oh, like she's a dream. Like, like, so we've got to squarely focus on what the real equity concerns are without getting distracted by the kind of, you know, effete concerns of the elite classes. And then we can have justice. And America was pretty good at that from like 1960s and 1970s. The 80s turned all that back. Um, and I, don't, I just don't know where we're headed in this kind of period where, you know, one of the two major political parties is deeply committed to putting us back to 1945 on all of these questions. And that, that's scary to me. Like, I mean, I'm just going to be honest. I mean, I'm looking at property overseas, right? I mean, it's a really scary proposition. And, and I'll, just, I'll just, you know, say I advise people at the very highest levels of this government. And I'm still terrified. Yeah, and, and I'm imagining people listening will hear that and to a degree will, will, will really feel that. And um, I guess it, bring, it got me thinking about two things. One, there's kind of the, there's the, um, there's the there's full societal view and what's required there and where the investments to go and, a, and, a, and the policy side. And then there's, individuals and i'm curious like if an individual is listening to this and whether they're maybe in a company or in whatever aspect of life they exist in Mm -hmm. and they're they're thinking oh okay like this 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 really is like a it's a tough nut to crack number one and it's easy Mm -hmm. for people in some regards to kind of go well what can i do like I'm just yeah. a, I'm just a person. Like, what is it? What's your message when you're when you're in organizations like QuickBase? When you're uh, mm-hmm. talking to your students and you're talking to the individual, given the the state of the nation as you've portrayed it, there. What what what's your perspective for them? What's your invitation for them? Yeah, the the the, the invitation is to understand that it's not always about you. Um, and that, you know, Audre Lorde and the black feminists, you know, they, they maintain that. And, and even, you know, uh, John Rawls and the kind of like the, the old kind of uh, uh, analytic philosophers, like they maintain that, you know, you're in a just society when the, 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 the weakest of the weak are cared for and kind of are identifying that and articulating that as a principle is crucial, right? Um, 
And we have, so that's the first step. And then the second step is, is, you know, when I run these polls for politicians, they're always freaked out by what, you know, people under 40 in America believe, right? And I'm like, no, no. So like they have had social emotional learning. <laughs> they, they understand all of these things about privilege and marginal identities and all. And so, so like that's not going to change, right? So, so what they understand is every little principled stand matters, right? And so what I always try to say to people in organizations is that you don't have to run for office, your local you know, school board or mayoralty or whatever it is or Congress. You can just in your workplace offer support to people that need support and gently correct people that need gentle correction. And like that is a really powerful contribution to the health <laughs> of the organization and, and other people, right? But that, that's not always easy to do because there is an active, an active pushback afoot. Um, and it feels very threatening. Um, yeah, so... Al, um, I, I know we're running up against the clock here and um, we want to be respectful of your time. Um, we, we have a tradition on this podcast where we ask our, uh, our guest to, if they could design a bumper sticker for life that went on the back of everybody's car, what, wow. what would it be? And so would love, love you to, uh, just off the top of your head, give us your bumper sticker for life. That's easy because the, 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 the CSDD slogan is helping people live better together. So my bumper sticker would be live better together, not apart, not in opposition, um, together. Um, and that doesn't always mean agreeing with or, you know, fully endorsing everything, but just finding a way to live better together. Wonderful. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, the, the word that kept coming up for me as you were talking and particularly in, in the last few minutes of what you were saying is, you know, curiosity. And I think if, if we can encourage people to be more curious and then somebody said it actually on this podcast a couple of weeks ago that, you know, to them, the opposite of judgment is curiosity. And mm. if you, if you could, and I, wh whether you believe that to be true or not, it's just a lovely way of framing it to say, well, if I, if I, if I show up as curious, then I'm less likely to have a narrative running in my head based on my socialization and my accumulated identity. Um, and I can, and I can explore and observe from a, a, a place of just empathy and curiosity, which, which would allow me to see something that I've probably never seen before. And that will make all the difference. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, we have so many amazing models in our culture of people who, I mean, you know, like I just think about like people that run the gamut from like Dolly Parton, the country music star, it's probably one of the most empathetic leaders that you could ever observe to like Barack Obama to like, you know, I mean, there's just so many role models for that kind of curiosity. 
if we can just kind of pause and observe how they interact in the world. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, you, you know, even people that like, I, I, I mean, you know, I've met, I've been blessed to meet in my life, three American presidents. I'm kind of like the Forrest Gump of meeting presidents. Right. <laughs> and the, the, the one that was like, I was like least excited to meet was when I was a teenager. I met Reagan, who's like just diametrically opposed to everything I believed, you know, uh, at the time. But then you meet the guy and he's just like, he's got this fundamental inquisitiveness about people. And he's, he's got this kind of, he, he kind of would assume this kind of universal, you know, it's like, that is somewhat innate, but it's also a skill that is developed. Now, it doesn't mean that like, you know, he would agree or, do, you know, but like, actually there are like lots of stories in the literature about like, you could, you could say to him like, no, no, that's wrong. And he'd be like, oh, you know, like, uh, like the famous, like, you know, welfare queen episode, right? Like in the eighties. Then they're like, oh no, Mr. President, that's wrong. And so he's like, oh, I'm sorry. And then he like went and had Thanksgiving dinner with a family that was on welfare, right? Like, and it's like, you know, and it's like that kind of switch <laughs> is is what we need, right? And, and you know, he still had like really horrible social welfare policy because he was surrounded by horrible people. But like on the kind of human storytelling level, he's able to engage. And when you have leaders that can engage like that, um, it's really important to the health of the Republic, right? And, and we need more of those um, and, and less of what we have now. Hell, Dolly Parton for president. <laughs> I just see about how she responds to all the flag banning last year. <laughs> I think there'd be a there'd be a very strong supportive base for that. <laughs> oh, wonderful! Well, Al, thank you so much. Um, it's been an absolute treat. Um, spending this hour with you and, and you're, you're such a legend and, uh, yeah, very grateful for your time and your insights. And hopefully this message gets out there and, um, and people embrace their curiosity and, and being inquisitive and, uh, and operating from a higher place. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Uh, and I'm going to start tuning in. So, <laughs> yeah. and I would just like to yeah. echo that Al, thank you very much. And I think, um, yeah. You know, live better together is definitely the the way for us to end this podcast is with that invitation for everybody to really see that as an opportunity and uh, really grateful for you uh, sharing your perspectives and, and opening up our hearts as well as our minds. So thank you. Thank you for joining us on this enlightening journey, unraveling the innate brilliance within every human being. We hope today's episode has sparked new thoughts and inspired fresh perspectives. Remember, the power to shatter illusions and unleash your true potential lies within you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite platform. If you'd like more insights and daily doses of inspiration, you can follow me on Instagram at Coaching. Or you can connect with myself and Mark on LinkedIn, uh, where we will share articles and perspectives about unlocking your innate brilliance. 
Remember, you are capable of extraordinary things. Keep believing, keep exploring, and keep shining brightly. Take care and stay brilliant.